Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Anto Walsh. Anto Walsh captained one of the Swedish ships that supplied the first garrison of Swedish troops into the city of Stralsund. This, of course, is all a lie. But if you would like me to lie about you... Head on over to Patreon. More on that later, but for now, enjoy episode 38 of The Thirty Years' War. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to The Thirty Years' War. So last time we saw the creeping domination of the Holy Roman Empire by Wallenstein continue apace. He smashed the Danish king, and this really served as his high point. The Habsburg supremacy was far from perfect, though. Stralsund, that unassuming city on the Baltic coast, was the underestimated obstacle that bamboozled Wallenstein throughout the tenure of the siege in the summer of 1628. This was a knock to the confidence of Habsburg progress, but at the time, it was just inconsequential enough for the emperor to be able to mostly ignore it. The more important result of Stralsund was the bridgehead in Germany that it granted the King of Sweden, and over the next few episodes we'll see that Gustavus Adolphus was very much keen to hang on to this bridgehead, as he became more interested with what was going on in the Empire. And what was going on in the Empire as 1628 became 1629 was a whole load of stuff. On the one hand, the King of Denmark needed to make peace, but this was easier said than done, thanks to the harsh terms that Ferdinand insisted upon. Wallenstein, as we'll see, had his own ideas about how to rectify this. At the same time, though, 1628 was a year when a whole load of stuff happened, events which we will give more time to in the future, like the Siege of La Rochelle and the War of the Mantuan Succession. The common theme is that 1628 was a year where Habsburg attentions were being pulled in several directions, especially if we include Spain in this equation. So in this episode we're going to conclude the Danish section of the story by examining how the peace treaty was arrived at, but we'll also examine some hints about what the Emperor was doing as this peace was being negotiated. Far from finished with Wallenstein and his army, Emperor Ferdinand needed him to impose the next phase of his plan, the Edict of Restitution. We have a lot to get through today, history friends and patrons, so without any further ado, I'll now take you to late 1628. 
The war had been largely favourable for Albrecht of Wallenstein, but the peace would leave a great deal to be desired. Stralsund, that stubborn city, frustrated the attempts of the Habsburgs to establish a Baltic fleet, and with that dream up in smoke for the moment, there was no way to pressure the Danish king in his home islands. At the same time, while he was militarily secure, King Christian IV was domestically besieged. A large portion of the Danish nobility, who had never wanted the war in the first place, had been dragged into the conflict with the emperor once Wallenstein had invaded up the Danish Jutland Peninsula in 1627. While there, Wallenstein secured invaluable quartering for his soldiers, but he also ravaged the lands of that same nobility and piled pressure upon the Danish king to save his ruined nobility before it was too late. This pressure proved significant in the end, and acting through the council, the nobility leveraged their position to wrest control over foreign affairs from the Danish king. If they had anything to say about it, there would be no more royal adventures in their lifetimes. This development would have several consequences for King Christian in the future, but first he had to end the war. As we have seen, Wallenstein was unable to reach him in Copenhagen, and thus achieve the decisive, crushing victory that Emperor Ferdinand desired. In addition, Wallenstein's concerns regarding the unification of the Baltic against the Habsburgs only grew as the months progressed, and the King of Sweden made more progress in his war with Poland. Once the Swedish-Polish war was concluded, Sweden would be free to join its Baltic neighbour in battling the Habsburgs. Wallenstein wanted Denmark to be out of the war before this could happen. Notwithstanding Christian's failure in the Battle of Volgast in September 1628, when the Danish king foolishly landed a company of soldiers and was promptly defeated, Wallenstein remained fearful of the combined resources of Denmark and Sweden against the emperor. He was, therefore, more amenable to compromise at the peace table. The negotiations at this peace table had been underway for some time in the city of Lübeck, but as the historian Jeff Mortimer discerned, these were merely negotiations after the fashion of the times, whereby each side made wildly unrealistic demands, responded to proposals only after the maximum possible delay, and preferred to argue over protocol rather than substance, all the while hoping that some success of their commanders in the field might improve their negotiating positions. This tactic of negotiating while fighting reared its disruptive head again two decades later, when negotiations for the Peace of Westphalia dragged on incessantly as both sides attempted to improve their diplomatic positions by wresting a new triumph from the battlefield. Since September 1627, both Wallenstein, in cooperation with the Emperor, and the Catholic League under the command of Count Tilly, had drafted a peace proposal for the King of Denmark to consider. 1627 had been a year of defeat for the Danish king. It was also the year before Stralsund demonstrated the futility of the Habsburg's Baltic design. King Christian recognised by the winter of 1628-29 to that his best opportunity for achieving a favourable peace depended upon his potential to realise the Habsburg fears. Danish military forces were spent and he had only his navy left to patrol the Baltic, but Christian's greatest asset was diplomatic. Rather than buckle under the pressure and cave to the Emperor's stringent peace demands, he would make a very public show of meeting with his old nemesis, Gustavus Adolphus, the King of Sweden. If Wallenstein truly feared the possibility of the Baltic uniting against his Emperor, 
then King Christian was determined to go as far as possible towards making the Generalissimo believe that this eventuality was right around the corner, whether the king intended to go all the way or not. Bluffing, as King Christian understood, was his best bet. But this begs the question, exactly what terms could have compelled Christian to make a show of cooperating with his regional foe? Well, in September 1627, and the terms were still being peddled by early 1629, the emperor was demanding the following terms be fulfilled before peace with Denmark would be considered. First, King Christian would have to surrender his imperial offices, which included those bishoprics that he had acquired for his sons. Second, he would have to cede either Holstein or Gluckstadt, the latter being a city founded by Christian in 1617 to compete with the imperial free city of Hamburg. Third, he would have to purchase from the emperor Holstein, Jutland and Schleswig at 2 million Reichsthalers each. Incidentally, this was the same total of 6 million Reichsthalers which Frederick V was charged with paying by Emperor Ferdinand several years before for the crime of breaking the imperial peace. These terms were bad enough, but in the negotiations of January 1629, the emperor demanded even more from the king of Denmark, whereby Christian would commit to not interfere in the empire ever again. He would financially compensate the emperor for the war, and most impossible of all, he would cede the Jutland Peninsula indefinitely to Ferdinand. These severe additions to the already impossible peace convinced Christian that the emperor and his chief negotiator at the Lübeck Conference, Wallenstein, would not give in unless he held some leverage over them. For his part, Wallenstein was wary of demanding too harsh a peace from the Danish king for two major reasons. First, he feared pushing Christian into the arms of the Swedish king and creating the aforementioned Baltic Union against the emperor. And second, Wallenstein knew that Denmark's Dutch and English allies could never allow such stringent terms to be accepted. Rather than allow this peace to be agreed, it was highly likely that London and The Hague would rally around the Danes and potentially deepen the conflict. These two concerns were thus connected, since Wallenstein above all wished to end the war in time to deal with whatever the King of Sweden planned, and, of course, to enjoy his new estates. Wallenstein by no means intended to liberate the Danish king from the war, but he was willing to reduce the burden of the peace. The more favourable peace was to the Danish king, the more likely he was to accept it. Fortunately for Christian, this left him with some opportunities to exploit Wallenstein's fears, as well as the Duke's generosity. As the negotiations at Lübeck stalled, Christian moved to meet with the King of Sweden at the town of Ulvsbach in February 1629, in a bid to impress upon Wallenstein just how close to establishing the nightmare Baltic arrangement Denmark was. The bluff paid off spectacularly well, and it must be considered one of the great successes of Christian IV's war. Although its results were to ease the harshness of the peace terms, the actual atmosphere of the meeting between the two northern monarchs was, predictably, less than warm. The scene of the two Baltic foes meeting together to combine against the greater threat is arguably the most striking image provided by the historian C.V. Wedgwood. The scene is one of a dejected Danish king in receipt of a pep talk from his Swedish counterpart, who plies him with encouragement and of frightful hypothetical scenarios, where Wallenstein secures a fleet and conquers the Baltic for Vienna, eliminating Protestantism and the freedom of both monarchs in the process. 
In response to Christian's insistence that his kingdom was devastated and had no fight left in it, King Gustavus retorted that Sweden had been fighting continuously for 30 years, even inviting the Danish king to feel the bullet in his shoulder as proof of his zeal for the cause. So long as it was the will of God, Gustavus insisted, he would go on fighting, and he urged Christian to do the same. But King Christian didn't seem up to the task. He gave limp, non-committal replies, always reverting to the reality of Denmark's domestic and physical situation. In frustration did Christian ask the fanatical Gustavus, What business has your majesty in Germany? The question left the Swedish king momentarily stunned. Recovering though, Gustavus let loose a reply which approached hysterical proportions, reportedly shouting, Is that worth asking? Your majesty can be sure that he be who he will that does this to us, emperor or king, prince or republic, nay, or a thousand devils, we will so take each other by the ears that our hair shall fly out in handfuls. This appeal was lost on Christian, though, as it was always bound to be, since King Christian had not travelled to meet with his Swedish rival for any other purpose than to frighten Wallenstein. Still, regardless of the accuracy of Wedgwood's account, it's worth retelling for its sheer symbolism and dramatic qualities. Indeed, Wallenstein was compelled first to send more soldiers to reinforce the flagging Poles, and second, to agree to the more moderate peace proposals which would bring the Danish war to an end as soon as possible. This latter aim was pretty effective, because the Peace of Lübeck was signed on the 22nd of May 1629, and while its terms were far from a triumph for King Christian, they certainly liberated him from the most insufferable articles of previous treaties. One historian has even called the Peace of Lübeck, in many senses, a major diplomatic victory for the Danish king. By this victory, Christian preserved his kingdom intact, but he was forced to relinquish suzerainty over the North German bishoprics, leaving his sons out of pocket. Christian would not be forced to pay any reparations to the emperor, but he would have to refrain from interfering in Germany, not that he was in any position to do so in 1629. The war, in spite of the somewhat favourable peace, had been nothing short of a disaster. Its consequences were felt most sharply in the aftermath of the conflict, as the king of Denmark was faced with three interconnected dilemmas. The first was that the war had wiped out his private fortune, which rendered Christian unlikely to engage in any independent pursuits as Duke of Holstein any time soon. In line with the second point, it also made Christian more dependent on his nobility, who were in no mood to play ball after being dragged into a war that they had never wanted. With their lands ravaged and scores to settle, the Danish nobility projected their powers and influence into the state council for the remainder of Christian's reign, and required additional concessions in return for any further steps Christian wanted to take. Trapped by his nobility, Christian was equally isolated abroad, as the third consequence was to invoke the ire of the English and Dutch. Christian could quite rightly have reasoned that this alienation from The Hague and London was unfair, since his kingdom had been led into a war based on promises as per The Hague Alliance, which his partners had demonstrably failed to fulfil. Christian had essentially been left to the wolves as the English focused on their Spanish and French conflicts and the Dutch rallied against the Brussels government. Meanwhile, the subsidies dried up and any pretense of strategic cooperation went out the window until they received whiffs of the uncompromising peace terms from the Emperor, which would have left them considerably out of pocket. 
Thus, the Peace of Lübeck represented the final nail in the coffin of the Hague Alliance, a league which never succeeded in getting off the ground in the first place. Christian may not have mourned the loss of his unreliable allies, which included his family members, but he would have known that the Peace of Lübeck left him with fewer choices if he wished to recoup his losses in the future, as he intended to do. The additional consequences will become apparent to us as this narrative progresses, but it deserves emphasis that a little more than a year after the Peace of Lübeck, Christian was forced to watch as his Swedish rival intervened in Germany. This time, a more important paymaster than either England or the Netherlands stepped forward, France. Thanks to French money and the brilliance of the Swedish king, Christian's unhappy destiny was to be eclipsed by his Baltic rival, as the Danish-Swedish hostility was extended from the Baltic into central Germany and beyond. His junior status to Gustavus Adolphus was something King Christian would never accept. He took full advantage of the shifting fortunes of war during the 1630s to regain control over the Lower Saxon Circle, and thereby regain the lucrative bishoprics for his sons. Indeed, he didn't relinquish his status as the predominant Baltic power lightly. Christian's role in the Thirty Years' War was by no means complete, but in 1629 he was forced to fade momentarily from view and from our narrative. The end of the Danish War in May 1629 did not mean the end of Frederick V's campaign. Incredibly, his war with the Emperor was nearing its tenth birthday, but the dispossessed Elector Palatine strove to remind his remaining friends that the importance and potency of the cause had not diminished with the passage of time. Indeed, as we will see, this cause acquired further baggage with the passage of the Edict of Restitution in March 1629, a document which aimed to turn back the clock in the Empire, empower the Catholic Church, fulfil the Counter-Reformation, and stymie, perhaps forever, the spread of Protestantism. This edict and its consequences would prove a step too far for many Germans and foreign potentates alike, as we shall see later, but now it remains to analyse the considerable diplomatic activities of the various parties of Europe. We're going to cover these foreign threads in just a moment, history friends, but before we do I want to let you know of something that you may not be aware of. When Diplomacy Fails is on Patreon, and I know that you know it, and I know that many history friends know it, because the support has been so immensely fantastic and generous over the last few years. Since we joined Patreon in February 2017, this podcast has gone from strength to strength, and it is, honestly, how I make the majority of my income while I'm doing the PhD in History in Trinity College, Dublin. But why, you may be wondering, would a history friend want to support this podcast on Patreon? Well, in short, if you like this show, if you like to hear my voice, and you just need more of it in your life, then head on over to Patreon, where you can access, at the very least, 30 hours of extra content. Oh, that's right. Between a series on the Suez Crisis, a series on the de-Stalinization process, and several episodes of Poland is Not Yet Lost, you'll be guaranteed to find something to keep you going as we maintain our bi-weekly schedule during the... Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. These difficult PhD times. In short, if you want more of When Diplomacy Fails, and if you want to support this show and basically support my journey through academia as well, patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. I should add as well, if joining things and paying for them isn't your thing, why not join something for free? The Facebook group, the When Diplomacy Fails Facebook group it's called, is over a thousand members strong and there's been some really good discussions in there over the last little while. I really love engaging with you guys in this format. I've found that the Facebook page, even though we've got like more than three and a half thousand likes, it's not very effective because you could make a history meme and Facebook could decide that actually those images are illegal and then they'll restrict your page. And then the next day they'll be like, hey, want to pay 10 euro to boost that post? In any case, I find that the most effective way to engage with you guys is through that group. So head on over and ask to join by clicking on the link in the description below. You can also follow this show at WDF Podcast on Twitter, where I talk about loads of different things and Really, I'm pretty easily accessible there. Why not say hi? Back in the old days of When Diplomacy Fails, we had that system called BeFit, which helped you remember all the different ways of supporting this show, but we've since moved on, and I'm not exactly sure how to compromise BeFit and make it work with what we have now, but again, I should say, these are difficult times for everyone. They're difficult times with COVID, and they're difficult times with, at the moment, my professional journey, as PhDs don't pay very well, so... It's been really incredible to see you guys rally around this show and support me as you have done. And I know I've dropped a load of hints, but my plan is, at the end of July, to let you know the thing that I've been sitting on for the last several months and to explain to you how this is going to impact the show and how you guys can take part and everything else. I am obviously really excited. I'm keeping it under wraps because it means less pressure for me. But rest assured, once the truth is out... I will not stop talking about it. So that's a little teaser, a little hint for you to keep you going. In the meantime, let's get back to the story. The year 1629 began tragically for Frederick V, weighed down by the dismal failure of the Danish war and the distracted English war effort. Frederick may have feared that his allies would never fully cooperate to reinstate him or his family in the Palatinate. Turning to the King of Sweden gradually in the 1620s as his best and perhaps his final hope, Frederick was crushed by a loss closer to home on the 17th of January when his firstborn son, Frederick Henry, drowned. 
Frederick Henry, at the time, was just 15. The two had been travelling to Amsterdam, incidentally, to gaze at the tremendous Dutch victory in seizing the Spanish treasure fleet, but a larger boat had collided with their own. Frederick had initially opposed his son joining him for the journey, but he had reasoned in the end that Frederick Henry could benefit from a change of scene. The decision surely haunted him for the rest of his life, but combined with the recurring bouts of bad news from the Empire, it had the potential to send him grieving to an early grave. It having pleased God, Frederick lamented, to add to my preceding hardships with a new affliction, the pain of which cannot be expressed with the pen. By the middle of 1629, Frederick was writing to Count Thurn, the most renowned of Bohemia's exiles, to exclaim that, God has nearly destroyed me through the loss of my most beloved son, which has surpassed all previous agonies. At the same time, he consoled himself through his faith, accepting that, It is reasonable that I submit myself to it as to that which is always just and good, though human sense has difficulty comprehending it. Since the hand of the one who governs all things has ordained it so, it is for me to adore him and to submit myself, hoping his hand will strengthen me and change everything for the better. As far as Frederick could see with his own eyes, only the timely intervention of the King of Sweden had the potential to change everything for the better. Yet Frederick was right to hope, for even while his entreaties to the beleaguered English and Dutch were largely in vain, the war in Germany and between Sweden and Poland had come to the attention of France. Cardinal Richelieu, France's eminent diplomatic and stately genius, was on the case. In a supremely delicate balance, Richelieu was engaging in complex diplomatic negotiations with the Swedish and Polish kings. In time, these negotiations would produce fruit because they freed Gustavus from his Polish preoccupations and enabled him to refocus his attentions on Germany, as Frederick had for so long hoped he would. It was unfortunate that this shift in Swedish attentions had taken as long as it had, but soon enough, the Swedish king was to restore all faith that Frederick had lost. By Gustavus's triumphs and Richelieu's intervention, Frederick could believe that God had not left him. With the conclusion of the war with Denmark, it might have been reasonable to expect that some form of lasting peace would finally arrive in the Holy Roman Empire. After over a decade of warfare, many fortunes had been wiped out. Livelihoods had been destroyed, towns and villages laid to waste, atrocities committed and returned in answer. The countryside plundered, the harvests stolen, the people laid low or forced into exile. The German heartland in particular was affected, but the war had not ceased to reach even the most remote corners of the empire. The lower Saxon circle, that portion of Germany just south of the Danish and Dutch borders, had not been spared just because it had been under the protection of the Danish king. The Duchy of Mecklenburg had not been secure simply because it was ruled by a distinguished house. Electoral titles, religious settlements and constitutional traditions evidently meant little to the Emperor so long as the eventual triumph was assured and his debts were paid. Unfortunately for the Emperor Ferdinand though, during the years 1628-30 to his debts increased as did his foreign commitments. The passing of the Edict of Restitution necessitated keeping Wallenstein's army in the field to impose it on the unwilling princes of the empire. Wallenstein was far from pleased with the new mission. He was unenthusiastic about the effect which forcing a religious settlement would have, not just on the Germans but also on foreign potentates, above all Sweden and France. The former will be provided with another plank upon which their intervention in the empire could be legitimised, 
and the latter, the French, could use the opportunity provided by the edict to pose as the friend to all liberty-loving Germans, thereby creating a third party in Germany, perhaps joined by the disenchanted Saxon and Brandenburg electors. These concerns were deeply felt by Wallenstein, who gives the impression of wanting to have his debts paid off, to return to his estates, and to prepare to satisfy Sweden so that any elongation of the conflict in Germany would be avoided and his gains would be protected. Instead, what Wallenstein found in his emperor were further demands predicated on his personal supremacy, and while this emperor had made Wallenstein a duke two times over and granted him more power than Wallenstein could ever have imagined, the conclusion of the Peace of Lübeck with Denmark marks the beginning of the end of Wallenstein's positive relationship with Emperor Ferdinand. The deterioration of this relationship was to prove fatal to both men for different reasons, but in summer 1629, Wallenstein was faced with yet another dilemma. The Emperor's demands to provide troops not only to impose the new edict, but also to help out his Spanish cousins in North Italy. The War of the Mantuan Succession was a proxy war of the Franco-Spanish conflict that would eventually explode out into the open in 1635, and the conflict over North Italy was itself an extension of the previous skirmishes for influence over the Valtelline Alpine passes that had punctuated the early and mid-1620s. France, with its Italian allies in Savoy and Venice, faced the Spanish Habsburg Italian allies of Milan and Tuscany with devastating consequences, not only for that portion of Italy, but also for wider Habsburg strategic interests and, more damningly, the Emperor's relationship with the Pope. The French were by no means free to pursue their interests in Italy with their full attention. It is a striking fact of the Thirty Years' War that much hinged on the years 1628-30, to and arguably 1628 in particular. In that year alone, four important sieges took place, one at Stralsund, as we have seen, another at Danzig in the Baltic by Swedish troops, another at Mantua, with the fourth and most threatening one for French internal stability being the siege of La Rochelle the stronghold of Protestant French Huguenots. It was in many respects a race to conclude each of these sieges first, and whoever was successful would acquire a distinct advantage over his rivals. This, at least, was what the strategic situation of 1628 inferred, but the actual outcome was less straightforward. It was good news to Vienna and Madrid that the King of Sweden failed in his efforts to seize Danzig, the greatest prize in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth but it was unfortunate that the Polish king's resources were too depleted to take advantage of this Pyrrhic victory. In addition, the Habsburgs lost the siege of Stralsund, frustrating their efforts to realise the Baltic design. The immediate significance of the Swedish failure at Danzig and subsequent Polish victories is seen in the new force it imbued in the Swedish king to reach a peace with his Polish cousin. After several years of conflict in Poland, Gustavus Adolphus had learned, but also lost, a great deal. He was by no means an undefeated generalissimo, as Count Tilly was. Instead, he was a demonstrated innovator, and a skilled leader of men on the battlefield. Comfortable in battle, though he was, Gustavus was wise enough to accept French mediation in his war. French action here demonstrates not only the wide strategic vision of the French First Minister, but also the increasingly international character of the Thirty Years' War. Once consigned to a Bohemian revolt, the conflict in Germany had evidently mutated far outside the confines of its regional box, to the point that French agents were conspiring to welcome a Scandinavian monarch 
into Germany. This hugely significant escalation in the stakes and scope of the Thirty Years' War should not be understated, but this was far from the final instance where concerted diplomatic efforts widened the reach of the war. The Truce of Altmark was signed on the 16th of September 1629, and upon its conclusion, Sweden and Poland were declared to be in a state of truce for six years. This provided the King of Sweden with an unparalleled opportunity to intervene in Germany, but as we will discover, he was not content to rely upon the pretenses of a truce alone to secure his Polish flank. Already by September 1629, Gustavus had learned of the Edict of Restitution, which helped couch his latter actions in religious terms. But it is worth bearing in mind Gustavus's security concerns for the North German shores as a motive behind his intervention. So long as Mecklenburg and Pomerania's ports faced Habsburg seizure or domination, Sweden's coasts could never be safe. In an examination of Gustavus's justification for going to war, we can't discount his genuine grievances which he held against the Emperor and Wallenstein for interfering on the side of the Polish king. These motives may be simplified as religious, strategic or vengeance, but to them we can add the more obvious question of ambition, a trait which the King of Sweden certainly possessed. By pushing back the Habsburgs and occupying the Baltic ports, not only would he secure Swedish security, he would also cement his legend and earn glory for his house. While Gustavus Adolphus's motives for intervention in the Holy Roman Empire are important topics for discussion, it must be underlined that French diplomacy made it possible. Cardinal Richelieu's activity in this regard is undoubtedly significant, but it should be placed in the context of his additional interests in North Italy. It followed that a Habsburg court, distracted by a Swedish war, would not be able to focus its full attention on the Mantuan conflict, and thus the wide scope of Richelieu's diplomatic activities, not to mention the interconnected nature of the Thirty Years' War's related conflicts, looms again into view. In spite of Richelieu's skill, though, misfortune seemed to stalk the French, as the stakes of the Siege of La Rochelle were greatly increased when an English fleet dramatically sailed to relieve the French Protestants in spring 1628. This unwelcome and untimely Anglo-French war led to a temporary rapprochement of sorts between Paris and Madrid, as both courts attended to their most pressing theatres in the Netherlands and at La Rochelle. This reduction in Franco-Spanish tensions lasted only as long as it suited both sides, though, and the war in Mantua effectively killed off any hope of Habsburg-Bourbon cooperation in its cradle. At the same time, the ability of both sides to claim some form of victory in the conclusion of the Mantuan War must be balanced against the losing efforts of the Spanish against the Dutch. This was a state of affairs which could only have benefited France and weakened the overall Habsburg position in the empire as well. These interconnected conflicts produced two major results. The first was that they weakened the emperor, as Ferdinand felt compelled to send soldiers from Wallenstein's army to support the Spanish, just as Wallenstein watched the movements of the Swedish king with increasing concern. Second, the dual commitment of the King of Spain to fight for his regime in the Spanish Netherlands and in North Italy at the same time eroded his power and his finances still further. This weakening of the King of Spain meant that he was less than enthusiastic about Emperor Ferdinand's decision to implement the Edict of Restitution on the Empire. Rather than waste soldiers trying to implement that contentious endeavour, 
King Philip IV of Spain believed that the emperor should instead support the Habsburg dynasty in the Netherlands and North Italy, where the true threats resided. These disagreements over policy and the precedence of certain issues might have disrupted the Habsburg cooperation, but for Vienna and Madrid having no choice other than to work feverishly together. Dependence on Spain was both necessitated and threatened by the worsening situation in Germany, where resistance to Wallenstein's enormous army and the consumption of resources to feed it had long since been a bone of contention. Ever since the electoral meeting at Mulhausen in September 1627, when Frederick V's electoral titles were confirmed stripped, those present had voiced their disapproval of the Emperor's Generalissimo having so much power and the size of his swollen army, which was then as large as 112,700 men. Territorial rulers, the German leaders had lamented, are at the mercy of colonels and captains who are the uninvited war profiteers and criminals breaking the laws of the empire. The Elector of Mines would go one further in December 1629 when he addressed the pertinent question. If the King of Denmark, the enemy of the empire, was defeated, then what was Wallenstein's army needed for? As this elector wrote in his own words, Since the Duke of Friedland has up to now disgusted and offended to the utmost nearly each and every territorial ruler in the empire, and although the present situation has moved him to be more cautious, he has not given up his plans to retain Mecklenburg by virtue of his imperial command. The argument that Wallenstein required the resources of the Duchy of Mecklenburg to repay the Emperor's considerable debt to him would have fallen on unsympathetic ears. So long as Ferdinand wanted his son confirmed as his successor, he would have to fall in line with the other wishes of the electoral princes, and in March 1630, the Imperial Arch-Chancellor announced to the seven electors of the Empire that their presence would be required at a meeting in Regensburg on the 3rd of June. In the meantime, during the months between the signing of peace with Denmark and the assembly of all electors at Regensburg, the Emperor had been busy. While Emperor Ferdinand was eager to acquire the necessary concessions, he was equally determined to shape the Empire in his own image, using Wallenstein as his sword and the Catholic Church as his shield. Whether they liked it or not, Emperor Ferdinand expected his enemies to bow down. In the next episode, we'll examine some portions of these efforts which Ferdinand had made to recast Habsburg rule in the hereditary lands of Bohemia and Austria in the late 1620s. We'll address the significance of Ferdinand's tenure as emperor, what drove him, and what his end goals were, as we build a complex picture, the creation of the Edict of Restitution, and what it meant for the Holy Roman Empire. I hope you'll join me for that, history friends, but until next time, my name is Zach, and this has been episode 38 of our series on the Thirty Years' War. Thanks so much for listening to the show and supporting it so generously. You're the best, history friends, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.